Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. Peter, you killed my father. There are bigger things happening here than me and you. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is uh, William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. And this time around, we're continuing our look at Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy with Spider-Man 2. This came out in 2004, so about two years after the first one, which is pretty quick for this sort of a movie. And it... Um, it had uh, some of the same cast, although, you know, the, the writer's different. The first one is credited to David Kep. This is a screenplay by Alvin Sargent, with a story by Alfred Gaw, uh, Miles Millar, and uh, Michael Chabon. Uh, again, based on the comic book by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko. And uh, aside from the usual gain of idiots, it also stars Alfred Molina as the bad guy. Uh, this has music by Danny Elfman, although there's some controversy about that we'll get into. Cinematography, Bill Pope, who I think might have been the, um, let me see if he shot the first one. Bill Pope is better known for doing, um, as a different cinematographer, but Bill Pope did cinematography for the Star Wars prequel movies. Uh, edited by Bob Murawski, Mar- uh, he does most of the same Raimi's films, and off a budget of a $200 million, made $783 million worldwide. So that is um, a good more, return. I think, uh, uh, oh, a, def- a very good return. You know, this was, as we sort of mentioned, Spider-Man coming after Blade and X-Men, you know, sort of really kicked off the, those three really kicked off the sort of uh, renaissance, late 90s renaissance of the superhero films, early 2000s. And, um, you know, I believe Fantastic Four had yet to see hit theaters because of how long it takes to develop films. It, the barrage of superhero movies didn't start in earnest until, I would say, really like 2006 or something. But this helped, um, certainly the original Spider-Man doing well helped Batman Begins get made, I would say. Yeah, there was there was a there was a pretty big Batman hiatus, and can I say I love that this movie is called Spider Man Two. I I find it absolutely charming that there's no colon followed by a subtitle. Yeah, doesn't that make it confusing? Like I always get confused which Captain America is which, um, and, and so forth. I, I agree. That's a good point. Yeah, I just I, I feel I feel like if your movie's going to be part of a series, number them like a series. Right, I mean, the the one I find in the 70s, it's very confusing when there are sequels, because they didn't put numbers afterwards, you know, apart from, like, Godfather 2. So you have things like Dirty Harry is followed by Magnum Force, which is followed by The Enforcer, I think. And, <laughs> or or uh, A Fistful of Dollars, A Few Dollars More, which uh, yeah, makes yeah, sense, yeah. and then The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Right, it it just becomes nonsense, or at least you know, Death Wish. I would say did Death Wish, Death Wish Two, and, and so forth. But we're Death not Wish about... Seven, Bronson needs a paycheck. Yeah, um, 
We're not really talking about Death Wish. We're talking about Spider-Man 2. Uh, when did you first see this in the theater? Uh, I saw this uh, opening weekend. Did you? Yeah. I, I didn't see it opening weekend, but certainly within the first month. I um, The summer this came out, I worked at a computer camp in initially in Atlanta, and then later I, I went up to Waltham, Massachusetts, um, not too far from Boston. And the counselors, uh, it was a spend-the-night camp, so when you were working, you were on call 24 hours. It doesn't mean you had to stay up for 24 hours, of course, but if there was an emergency, mm-hmm. you'd be woken up in the middle of the night and, and had to deal with it, um, which I think only happened like a few times. Uh, anyway, you know, a bunch of us counselors had the night off, so we uh, cut the bus into Boston, uh, cut the train, and then saw Spider-Man 2, just the just the adults. And, um, cool. The, the the odd thing is, you know, later in the the summer camp, we took the kids to a all the fifty kids or whatever to a movie, and the president of the company, in her knowledge, did not pick Spider Man Two. She picked The Born Supremacy, which is an extraordinarily <laughs> violent uh, PG thirteen political thriller. Because she thought, oh, it's Matt Damon; it's fine for kids. Uh, but not not the iconic four colored superhero character that everybody knows and loves. She went with a a, a born movie. <laughs> It, it was, yeah, not not one of our best decisions. But yeah, Spider-Man 2, you know, we were excited just to get out of the camp. And so, But on top of that, it was a, a real fun movie. I believe Roger Ebert says this was one of his favorite superhero movies. He was not the biggest fan of the genre. and It, it, um, it was my favorite for a while. I loved this movie. It's my favorite of Sam Raimi's trilogy, uh, and I saw this in the theater three times. Oh, wow, yeah. No, we did, we did a poll on uh, my Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. And uh, people by far said Spider-Man 2 was their favorite, which didn't really surprise me. Um, I, I will say, though, I have some some issues with, with the film, but it's, uh, you know, in some early drafts of the original Spider-Man film, uh, Doc Ock was supposed to be in there, and then they thought wisely too many villains. And uh, for me, Dr. Octopus is the iconic Spider-Man villain. Really? Yeah, I don't I just love the way he looks, and... You have sort of one Spider-Man versus a, another Spider-Man of a sort. And um, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes features uh, on, on the DVD, but also on TV at the time, about how they did the effects for the um, tentacles. Oh, yeah. And I and love it, the tentacle effects. Can we talk about those for a moment? Uh, yes. It's a mixture of practical and digital yeah, and they really, I mean, they, they really do the tentacles well. Uh, they seem like they have both weight and power to them. Uh, I like that they give some thought to the physics of how the tentacles would work if they were real physical objects. I don't know if you noticed, but whenever Doc Ock uses his tentacles to lift something or throw something heavy, at least one tentacle is always anchored to the ground so that the whole rig can support the weight of whatever he's lifting. I didn't notice that, but I, I do recall in interviews, um, they, they had puppeteers operate the tentacles, and each tentacle had a different personality, so to speak. It just um, yeah, they, yeah, the tentacles have character, which they is do, a level of depth yeah. I did not expect. Right, it'd be so easy to, um, you know, just wiggle them around, and they look like little vipers or something. But it, yeah, there, there's a um, a playfulness, but also smartness, even the way he moves with the tentacles is um is is really smart something to see and so i, I need to give the plot summary uh in my brief fashion um two years have passed since the original spider-man film and uh, peter parker is delivering pizzas he's still kind of flubbing it with mary jane 
And uh, he finds another father figure scientist dude in uh, Dr. Otto Octavius, who's um, doing some sort of solar fusion uh, experimentation. And the accident goes haywire, and his uh, his, his tentacles for handling the uh, the fusion reactor experiment, uh, he loses his mind control, and so they take over his mind, make him go crazy, and eventually Spider-Man has to fight him. That, in short, is the plot of Spider-Man 2, but we'll go into it in more detail. Um, what did you think about Alfred Molina as Doc Ock compared to Willem Dafoe as the Green Goblin? I thought I thought he really did a really good job. I think he was, as a villain, he was far more sympathetic than the Goblin. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I like, I also, I also like that... Uh, they didn't. They didn't buff him up. One of the 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 cool things about Doc Ock in the comics is that he doesn't look like a traditional villain. There's nothing particularly threatening or imposing about him. He's a short, dumpy guy with a bad haircut, and that's how he's portrayed in the movie. He's a short, dumpy guy with a bad haircut who just so happens to have a brilliant, if unhinged mind uh, and a rig of octopus tentacles. Um, I. I thought he worked really well as as another surrogate father figure for Peter. Uh, I also I also loved him. So Will, Willem Dafoe is the Goblin. Uh, he goes from zero to crazy uh, the, the moment he gets you know gassed and starts to turn into the Goblin. But with Doc Ock, there's much more of a progression, and we see the internal conflict he has when the inhibitor circuit for his tentacles gets overloaded and he starts to lose his mind, we see him gradually go mad. And I loved those scenes where he's arguing yeah. with his tentacles and, and by by through those tentacles arguing with himself. Those scenes are so creepy and have some wonderful depth to them. I I think when it comes down to it, he is he's both my favorite villain in this series and one of my favorite villains in the in the modern era of superhero films. So, um, the one thing that I forgot about, but I was reminded when I did research, is, you know, uh, before this film was made, Tobey Maguire was in Seabiscuit, suffered some pretty bad injuries, mm. uh, to the point where Sony uh, might have had to have recast the lead, I and mean, they were considering going with Jake Gyllenhaal. Huh. Um, but Maguire, you know, had to recover and so forth, and um, so he's obviously in the film, and that would have been a bad uh, paycheck. You know, had he not done it, you know, that would have been a big opportunity for uh, Gyllenhaal. But um, I thought that was somewhat interesting. But I remember there's a lot of stuff at the time. And also, McGuire was trying to negotiate for a significantly bigger salary. Um, As he although should. He's, oh, right. And he's, although he signed a three-picture deal with Spider-Man, so there's talk. So he's going to walk away. We're going to have a different Spider-Man in the second picture. But that's not what happened. And, and so, I mean, let's talk about the beginning of the movie. It starts off with um, something more comedic it it doesn't you don't get a title card that says two years later but they reveal it in the dialogue and uh you get peter parker is um he's out of high school he's in college he has a part-time job delivering pizzas he has a shitty one-room apartment yes um and so what do you think the whole like pizza delivery sequence where he decides oh i know i i have to do it in 30 minutes or less i can do this as spider-man to do this uh you know to go 60 city blocks or whatever it is I, I think it's really fun and it reveals a lot of character. And what I what I love about it is that, you know, in, in a lesser movie, 
his superpowers would make delivering the pizza easier, but it doesn't because uh, in in this opening bit with the pizza delivery, it hammers home the fact that the thesis statement of Spider-Man is with great power comes great responsibility. So as he's trying to deliver the pizza, he keeps seeing problems that he has that he keeps having to solve as Spider-Man. Leading to one bit of comedy, which I didn't like the first time I saw it, but it really groaned on me, where uh, where he has to like st- stop a mugging or, or save somebody or whatnot, and he, so he leaves the box of pizza just on a fire escape, and a person comes out, and like you do when you see an unattended pizza, tries to, tries to eat it. Yeah, he webs the slice out of the guy's hand. It, it's a good bit of business. It, um, it reminds me of the... Uh something you'd see in the comic book like sort of a goofy intro but i also like the bit of business in his apartment we have his um landlord mr dictovich and there's just the playfulness between him yelling about the rent and then his daughter ursula uh sort of flirting with peter which pays off more in spider-man 3 i was shocked that that paid off in spider-man 3 (laughs) Uh, Spider-Man 3 pays off a lot of things in unexpected ways. It's, um... Well, something about that movie had, too. Yeah, so, it, it, I think we get, um, you know, he's not a high school kid, although I think Tobey Maguire never looked that young, and he looks better, you know, as a, um... College student. College student, thank you. Uh, but we also see that his, his working a job and him being Spider-Man saving people all the time is causing a toll. He's being late for class. Yeah, like well, which which is another that that's one of the the good things about the Spider-Man comic that I'm glad they they manifested in the movie is that it's it's not easy being Spider-Man. It it costs him something. Right. And and he's always in he's always in these positions where he has to choose between himself, his relationships and Spider-Man, and so often it's himself or his relationships that suffer. Yes, and uh, we also get, you know, um, Dylan Baker plays Dr. Kurt Connors, who in the comics later becomes the Lizard. I don't know if they ever plan for that for the future movies, but... They're, well, I mean, this this was all rumor, but supposedly, yes, they were planning on him becoming the Lizard in a later movie. Possibly, because that was all. That was always the 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 rumor. That was always, oh well, the third movie's going to have to be the Sinister Six. So he's going to become the Lizard, and he's going to join the Sinister Six. But of course, that's that's not what happened. But that's that's another thing that I I like about this movie. It's not burdened with being connected to other movies other than the first Spider Man film. You know, if if we if you were to see a character like Doctor Connors in a Spider Man movie today he would only be included to set up the lizard in a future film. Here, he might become the lizard, he might not, but if he does, the groundwork's been laid. Well, not just that, but, I mean, this these uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man pictures, because of the, the deal, you know, the rights that Sony had, could pretty much only have Spider-Man characters. He didn't have to have, like, Iron Man pop by to give make him a sandwich or something. There's something, it's like a pure uh, Spidey comic with no crossover stuff, which is, is also <laughs> nice. Um, so we also, I mean, not only does he have problems, you know, sort of sleeping in school, we get the, um, he's sort of on the rocks with J. Jonah Jameson, where, uh, Parker's trying to turn in more artistic photos, and, um, he just wants more Spider-Man photos. 
Yeah, because he he's got a that that's one thing for for a newspaper editor who insists on Spider Man being a menace. He also seems to insist on putting photos that make Spider Man look good all over his front pages. Right, and J. Jonah Jameson is even better, I think, in this film than the original. He just starts off at eleven and just keep he's like rapid fire. He keeps on getting interrupted by phone calls and the secretary tries to speak to him and he keeps on cutting her off no matter what it is. You know, one of my favorite bits of business in this movie is after, after Doc Ock becomes a villain and starts, you know, robbing places and going on rampages, there's a great scene where J. Jonah Jameson and Ted Raimi are having an argument about what yes. to call this new villain. Uh, and they they just, they rattle off some great names, a couple of clunkers. There's only one jokey one when they talk about calling him Dr. Strange. Dr. Strange, yeah. Uh, but it's fun, and that's another thing I, I like. I like that Doc, Doc Ock doesn't name himself. I like that the newspapers come up with that name because they got to put something snappy in the headlines. Right, it's a, it's a pretty good moment. So, I mean, as part of um, his college class, he has to talk to someone, and through um, his connections at Osborne Industry, through Harry Osborne, he gets to talk to the famous nuclear scientist Otto Octavius. And um, I, I, I have a problem in that the relationship between Peter and Otto is very similar to what we see between Peter and um, Norman Osborn, Willem Dafoe in the first film. However, it's much better done here. We get uh, real nice character moments where he meets Otto and his wife, and at one point, Alfred Molina smiles and points to uh, Tobey Maguire and says, I love this boy. It's... Um, there's a lot of heart, there's a lot of, they take time, uh, as you mentioned earlier, before they go into the story, you know, before he goes bad, and that's done gradually. Yeah, their relationship yeah. does have does have some time to breathe, which is nice. Uh, how do you feel about the whole sort of, we get a lot of um, sort of techno babble in which we see Otto Octavius put on his tentacles and he explains what they do and they do a super close-up, I should say extreme close-up, not super close-up, of uh, the chip at the top connected to his spine. Most of the technobabble, I, th I think, works because I, th I think it is important to, you know, especially if you're going to this movie not knowing the comic book, I think it is important to take a little bit of time to establish exactly what the rules for the rig are and, you know, and, you know, why does why does he have it? Because normally you wouldn't use a giant robot arm rig in nuclear science, but the movie does does work to justify it. The only thing I don't like about it, because it's a bit too on the nose, is when they they really hammer it home about the inhibitor chip on the rig. Um, it would be one thing to just toss off a real quick line about there being an inhibitor chip, but just the fact that a reporter flat out asks. Well, gee, if the computer systems are so powerful, what stops the rig from just taking over your mind and body? Like, that that is so on the nose, he might as well say, what's to stop you from becoming a supervillain who's insane? It, it's, especially since I, it's well enough established in both sci-fi and in superhero things, a surge of electricity can make things happen, so... It shouldn't be difficult to buy into if this thing is wired into his brain and he gets zapped with enough electricity running through it, he loses his mind. We don't need this whole thing with the inhibitor chip. Especially since the whole thing with the inhibitor chip would seem to imply if Spidey could just get a second inhibitor chip and plug it into the ring, Doc Ock would be cured. Hmm. 
Like, I feel like the only reason to make such a big deal about the inhibitor chip is if that's how Spider-Man's going to solve the problem. Right. It's, um... However, I think we get a pretty good moment where you see the experiments going on in front of the press, and then stuff starts going wrong, and Spider-Man tries to hop in and save him. And, um, you know, accidentally, because of all the damage that's caused... The uh, one of the windows shatters and the glass kills Octavius's wife, and you get a good shot of her screaming and her screaming face reflected in the glass as it punctures mm. her. Yeah, and it's and this is this is one of those things that I th- I feel like it works in the movie, and yet and this this comes from somebody who has read a lot of comic books. 90% of the time, if there's a female love interest, whether it's a wife, girlfriend, fiance, what have you, and you just guess, I bet they're going to die, you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, speaking of females in this movie, I think they give Mary Jane a lot less to do than in the first film. Well, so much of what she does is on stage, which is in that production of The Importance of Being Earnest, which on the one hand, I do love. I love that you know she's in a classical play that's that's going on or she's having some sort of success, but so much of what's going on with her in the play happens at the periphery. Uh, so it, 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 you don't feel it as much when, when Spider-Man starts to drive a wedge between Peter and Mary Jane. I mean, there's, although just, there's already yeah. a pretty big wedge, and, and that wedge's name is uh, John Jameson. Right, and the way he's introduced it made me think, oh, are they going to do some of the Venom storyline? But they don't really follow that here. Yes, because John, John Jameson uh, is J. Jonah Jameson's son, who is also an astronaut, and who is in, engaged to Mary Jane. Which does kind of, I mean, I realize time has passed between the two movies, but I would like to, I would sort of like to know what their relationship is, is like, because we kind of go slam bang into the engagement. Yeah, they don't set it up that, I mean, there's a bit of a mystery at the beginning where Mary Jane... See, says that she's seeing a guy and it's serious, and you don't know. Oh, is it is it Harry? Oh, could it be Flash Thompson? Oh, oh, who could it be? You know, you don't know. And then when it's revealed to be J. Jonah Jameson's son, who we never even saw in the first film, it's um, well, because he was in space at the time. Well, uh, for yeah, I suppose so. But I mean, it's just <laughs> ridiculous. I, I don't know. It just doesn't pay off as well as it should, or it could have been set up a bit more. Uh, they could have saved this for the next picture, frankly. But oh, can I, can I just run this by you? Can you name yeah. a a single other film where one character is an astronaut, but the movie isn't about astronauts? I yeah, no, I don't think I can. I was thinking it, of things like the right stuff or Apollo thirteen. But like, I love that, uh, that like, space cowboys. Yeah. Yeah, but those are about astronauts no, doing exactly. astronaut things. I love right. that it's just a job, and I realize that is a hang. Uh, uh, that is something that is brought over, you know, from from the comics. But I love astronauts. I love space exploration, and I love that that's just part of a character's background in a, in a movie that's not about NASA in some way. Uh, we mentioned in the original Spider-Man, there was um, you know sometimes Spider-Man himself moved with not that much weight. Seemed a bit cartoony. How do you think he moves here? He moves pretty well. I mean, there's still a lot of character in the animation. Uh, there's a there's a bit more weight behind the swings, uh, but other than that, it's pretty much on par with what's uh, in the first film. I love where you have um, 
Doc Ock climbing the side of the building. It's just such a good oh. comic book image. And yeah, I mean, they they really take advantage of the fact that we can do amazing things with computers to make to make those those scenes of conflict between Spider Man and Doc Ock work. And and none of neither one moves like a like a CGI ragdoll. <laughs> they move like real characters. Hmm. Right. It is. Um, it's really something. So, um, I mean, how do you feel about uh, how this movie is after Doc Ock becomes bad? I mean, I, I, I love the scene of him in the hospital. That's very much. Oh, that like is some straight Sam, Sam Raimi cheese horror. Yeah. Yeah. Just the the paramedics trying to you know talking about having to cut him out of the rig. And like the moment the, the rig is under threat, yeah, the the tentacles just come up and start doing horrible things in that operating room. Do you think the chainsaw is a reference to um, Army of Darkness? I I think so. It's it seemed it seemed the way it's shot really echoes the presentation of the chainsaw from uh, Evil Dead Two and Army of Darkness. Although spe- speaking of which, uh, Bruce Campbell, we didn't talk about his cameo in the first film as the wrestling announcer. Yes, but he has a, a bit more. He has more to do in this film as uh, was he's the the usher at the theater. Oh, it's very funny. Yeah, Peter, you know, is because he's run down as a big and overdoing it. He's his batteries are running down, so to speak. He that's a big theme of this film. He's late for the show, and so he can't come in. And um, he he tries to come in and beg and plead, and he's like, "Nope." And the as the usher, he points at the door, like, "No one will be admitted after <laughs> you know ten minutes after the show starts or whatever." Just Bruce Campbell being sort of smarmy and officious in a, in a weirdly charming way. <laughs> and, I, and that's the other thing I, I love is just is that Peter Parker slash Spider-Man, he is defeated, but he's defeated by an usher from, a, from an off-Broadway theater. Yeah, it's just such a funny bit of comedy, and they really let it stretch out, and you feel bad for Peter Parker. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, we cut to the, the inside of the theater and we see his empty reserved seat and uh, Mary yeah. Jane's kind of glancing at it in the middle of one of her scenes. Yeah. And that, that hurt because I've, I've, I've disappointed the important people in my life like that, although Bruce Campbell sadly was not involved. And, and so that, that, that scene stung a lot. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good scene. I think the movie becomes less interesting when... Doc Ock gets his powers because you get a lot of um, you get a lot of fight scenes. On the other hand, I do like you get um, Harry Osborn gets some more business to do. Uh, again, played by James Franco, where he tries to to work out something with Doc Ock. Where he wants him to get Spider Man for him in exchange for oh, yeah, and you, and you, you all. You almost think, oh, this is where the Sinister Six is going to start happening. But no, the movie has enough restraint that that doesn't start happening. Uh, yeah, you get a little bit of something at the end, but we'll get into that. But, yep. Um, the, I think the battle on, on the train is pretty tremendous. It's, it's, a, it's a really well done battle, and yet... And, and this, this is also one of the other things that, that dates the movie, even at the time... Is that during the battle, Spider-Man gets unmasked, everybody sees who he is, people even take photos, but that never comes up later. Yeah, that almost seems like a an actor demand. I it, I get really annoyed when, I mean, part of the mask is what makes the character, and if you do several scenes with him without the mask, 
you know, and you get a lot of that in this movie with the these fight scenes. It, well, it, it just it just seems unmotivated. I mean, with you, you know. J. Jonah Jameson has like a bounty out. If you can prove who Spider-Man is, he'll he'll throw a few thousand dollars your way. Like that that should have that should have been the next movie. The next movie should have been someone from that that bus out Spider-Man. Right. Um, what do you think about the final battle at the lab? Uh, overall, I like it. I like, you know, I like things that begin the way they end, so I like that the final conflict happens uh, where Doc Ock was, was effectively born as a villain. And that's, that's the other thing I like about, about, the, about Doc Ock, is that, you know, he's not evil for the sake of being evil. He's not trying to take over the world. He has this theory he wants to prove, this technology he wants to perfect, and that's what motivates him. So, in, in, the, in the end, the grand climax is a big science experiment, which does not involve a giant blue space laser. That's right. You know, I um, I don't think it's as good as the fight scene on the train. It feels kind of a letdown, but that he, he sacrifices himself and kind of has a good turn at the end is um, is a nice character moment for him. Yeah, I, I like I like that the stakes are emotional, and it's like that that pleading to his humanity is what allows him to. I I, I guess I, to, to, I guess to to die with the possibility of being redeemed. That he he sort of comes to terms with the fact that him trying to perfect this fusion technology is costing is costing people their their lives and their livelihood. So he goes down with his ship to prevent the fusion core from from detonating and destroying a big chunk of New York. And that's and that's great. I, I love it when when the villain is defeated by not being punched uh, into giving up. Now, you know what? I think I know what makes this scene kind of fall flat because there is a lot at stake with with the the reactor and, and sure. whatnot. I think it's that it's such a small, self contained environment. It's not the kind of environment where you can really showcase all the amazing things Doc Ock and Spider Man can do. No, I think you're right. It's um. And then beyond that, and this is, if, if I were to rewrite any part of this movie, Doc Ock's wife isn't dead. She's in a coma. Mm. And the way Doc Ock is, is kind of de- is defeated when Spider-Man realizes violence won't work, she comes out of her coma and Spider-Man brings his Doc Ock his wife and his wife pleading with him is what kind of brings back his humanity. I think that would have been, that well, would have been, been a bit nice. more satisfying. Sure. Um, I before we get to the very end of the film, um, there's a comedic moment that at the time I thought was funny, but now I think it's a little bit tiresome. Where Spider-Man is in an elevator. <laughs> yeah, just kind of waiting as opposed to like climbing up the elevator shaft or on the outside of the building. It's a bit of sort of improv humor where they say, "Oh, is that is that suit comfortable?" And he's like, "What well, rise in the crotch a little." Yeah, that's a, that's a little bit sticky. I, like Spider Man should be able to come up with a with a like a better quip. Like it feels like it feels great, but the dry cleaning bills are through the roof or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I don't think that moment quite works. Uh, I do love the Harry Osborne stuff at the end, which sort of again something else that pays off in the next film. Oh yeah, the the family madness kind of creeping up on him, and, and you, you know, get Willem Dafoe as a little cameo at the end or his voice, right? Yeah, which which came which came as a shock. No one no one in the theaters was expecting that because it's not as like it, it wasn't like billed that he was going to be in this movie in any way shape or form. Right. And you have um 
you know, there's a bit throughout the film of Harry Osborn, you know, wants Spider-Man, and he, he gets to see Spidey's true identity, which is his friend, which sort of shocks him. Um, but he, so he, there's a little bit that he wants to carry on his father's legacy, but uh, not to the bad guy point. But then, you know, then he sees his secret lair with all the uh, prototype, uh, different equipment, which is a nice reveal. Oh, I have to, I have to ask, what do you think about the, the brief subplot in this movie about Spider-Man losing his powers? They don't do enough with it, I think. Um... Yeah, I, I it's something it's something that probably well there's there's kind of two flaws. One, it probably should have been saved for the third movie, and two, yeah, Spider Man yeah. is all about the power of choices. It should never be about him losing his powers. It should only be about him choosing not to use them and to walk away from the Spider Man identity. Right. I mean, you oh, get that iconic hand. image straight out of the comic with the trash can on the foreground and him walking away. Yeah, which. Uh, the one thing that I do like about this bit, though, is that, one, nothing magical or scientific happens to him to cost him his powers. It's purely psychological due to all the stress he's under trying to live this double life and do all these things and keep everybody happy. And the other thing I like is that when he does take his break from being Spider-Man, I really do love that musical montage with raindrops keep falling on my head. And I remember even watching it as like, well, the only thing that would take this up to 11 would be if they ended on a freeze frame, and then they end on a freeze frame. Yeah. I, I found that so charming and so so unique within a superhero film. I was really happy that, that Sam Raimi did that indulgent flourish right there. I don't, like, I, I don't think a director would make that kind of choice today. The only the only choices directors of superhero films seem to make today uh, involves how much bombast they're going to use. Hmm. Right. It's uh, we get you know some of the the music themes from the first film, but it's not as in your face as the Danny Elfman's Batman music. Say. Oh, speaking of which, you did want to talk about Danny Elfman's music in this. I I did. You know, there it was a thing where. Danny Elfman had a, a terrible experience working on this music. And, in fact, uh, a lot of the music in the film was actually... His cues were completely rearranged mm. by... Um, oh, let me look up his name. By Christopher Young, who is better known for doing music on the Hellraiser movies. Really? Yeah, there's they just had really, you know, stupid, tight... Deadlines. Danny Elfman felt he wasn't um, given enough time to do a good job with the music, and then at the last second, other people worked on his stuff, which I think made him more angry. But yet, he still contributed a little bit of music to Spider-Man Three after all that. So, well, they probably paid him really, really well. I mean, oh, I'm at, sure. He's... At the time, if you were doing a comic book movie, the only person you went to was Danny Elfman. Well, I mean, even later he would do music for the uh, the Hulk movie by Ang Lee. Oh, the He's Hulk doing music. Came, the Hulk came between Spider Man and Spider Man Two. Oh yes, and um, he is also doing music for the upcoming Justice League movie. Really? Yeah. Huh. Well, that's a point in that movie's favor. Yep, and he said he developed themes for characters like Cyborg and Aquaman that don't have music themes. Now, do you think he's going to use his Batman theme for Batman, or is he going to do a whole new theme? Um, I love his leitmotifs. Yeah, you know, I don't know. He he did mention there is a cue that uses some of John Williams' Superman theme in it. Cool. 
but it's in an unexpected part, and um, yeah, so we'll see. I think there might be a, a callback. I'd be surprised if there wasn't. Uh, I'm more interested in the rumors if Ben Affleck is still going to keep being Batman or not, because that keeps on flittering around for back and forth for a while. So, well, who well knows? If, we're, if we're doing rumor mill stuff, I have a feeling this is Justice League is going to be his last appearance as Batman. <sighs> Me if too. He, if he shows up as Batman again, it's going to be because they drove a dump truck full of money up to his house and his third appearance as Batman won't involve him standing up. Yeah. Um, It'll just be him in a cockpit with the cowl on or sitting in front of a computer. It'll be a classic Orson Welles performance. Latter-day Orson Welles. Yeah, very interesting. We'll have to see what they do. Um, there's also an alternate cut of this film called Spider-Man 2.1. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, which has some... Um, Deleted scenes, it was done as a promotional thing when Spider-Man 3 was in theaters, I think. And it just, um, we get an extra fight scene between Doc Ock and Spidey, but it's pretty much all CG. It's when Doc Ock is robbing a bank and they go in, and they're climbing on the building, they go inside a room and Doc Ock pummels Spidey for a bit. It's a bit too computery looking. Um, there's an alternate take of the improv comedy in the elevator, uh, there's an odd scene where um, J. Jonah Jameson tries on Spider-Man's outfit. Huh. And you see him wearing the outfit going, Now ah, this is sort of fun. Uh, with with his face sticking out, you see his head on the outfit. Which, well, I guess um, it does explain what happened to the outfit after he threw it out. <laughs> yeah, which is a, a weird sort of moment. And, uh, and some slightly different takes throughout the movie slightly extended it's about eight minutes longer um I, I don't think it's notably better than the original version in fact in some way i think it's worse because it just feels a bit stuffed but this comes of course from seeing the first one so or from seeing the original cut in the theater mm. um but yeah it's called 2.1 which is kind of confusing and strange i don't know why they did that but the versions of the sun video have both cuts typically so, um, do you say sequel yes or sequel no to Spider-Man 2? Oh, sequel yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think sequel yes. Um, I, I agree. I think this is the best of the trilogy. They do a better job. But my only thing I'm not crazy about is the way they set up Dr. Octopus is very similar to how they set up Green Goblin, but they do a better job of doing it here. Nothing against Willem Dafoe. Um, and Spider-Man 3, man, that was a movie people were looking forward to, and it'll be interesting to revisit it and see if it's as bad as people uh, as people thought it was at the time. Yeah, this is this is one of those cases where like, I feel like I'm dreading revisiting the third film, but I've got to. That's part of the sequel cast oath. Right, and Spider-Man 3 makes the classic mistake <laughs> of having way too many characters. But we'll, we'll get to In that next week. We'll get that next week. Um... So, pitch a sequel. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think, you know, if I was doing a, a sequel to this, I might make Spider-Man 3 the Sinister Six. And you would just have... Um, and, and, and the way I would deal with, um, you know, all the bad guys is I would have the Sinister Six have, like, three different team-ups of two each. And Spider-Man would sort of fight them like bosses in a video game. Hmm. Uh, and there's one final fight where they're all six trying to work against Spider-Man, and he uses his wits to um, try and save them. 
And I think I'd, I'd have something in there where um, Harry Osborn gets killed in much the same matter of his father. And you have a, a bit of a tragic scene there. And I would uh, end it where, as, as Spider-Man is walking away, we see his shadow become big and black, almost like it's laughing. Hmm. Sort of teasing Venom in some way. but um, And that's what I would do for Spider-Man 3. What about you? Well... I was kind of thinking along the same lines. It's three movies in, probably going to be the last one. you got to go out with a bang. So I would also do a movie where it's Spider-Man versus the Sinister Six. But the way I'd do it, so you have Harry Osborn. He's now fully in control of his father's company, but his father's company is tanking. Uh, partly mm. due to mismanagement, but also due to the fallout from the fact that every time they get, invol- get involved in a big groundbreaking project, a supervillain is born and lives are lost. Uh, and so, you know, Harry Osborn's trying to think of what he can do to protect his father's legacy, but he's still going a bit more unhinged and he's still, you know, haunted by the voice of his father. Uh, and he still wants revenge on Spider-Man. Uh, and it start and he comes up with a, a, a way that he can solve all those problems. He finds all of his father's old notes. He improves upon the goblin technology, and he intentionally gasses himself with the uh, with the goblin's gas. Uh, but it's a refined version. That the, the idea being, it'll give him more of the advantages with fewer of the disadvantages. And he organizes the Sinister Six and. We spend a lot of time with him, and it's kind of almost like a Godfather rise to power thing. The Sinister Six, he, as the, as the, as the Goblin, he breaks into jail, and he frees a bunch of villains that Spider-Man has locked up. Uh, so that way, we don't have to waste too much time with the origin stories of all the villains that are going to join the Sinister Six, which yeah. would absolutely have to include uh, Sandman and Mysterio. Um it would also give us an opportunity to have some fun cameos by lesser-known or even regrettable Spider-Man villains like the Sinister Spot. Something you know, there that's just for the fans. And initially, all the they, they do big, high-profile crimes, but they're all crimes committed against Oscorp's rivals, allowing Harry to steal their their corporate secrets uh, and you know use them to make his own company rich and powerful. But the and this is where he gets, there's some internal conflict with the Sinister Six, uh, is that they think that the crimes are too flashy and high profile and it's only going to make them more vulnerable. But the reason they are high profile is that the Goblin's trying to lure Spider-Man out. He wants that inevitable conflict. And just to show how far the Goblin is going, at one point, one member of the Sinister Six will say, we are getting too big and too dangerous. Uh, I can't do this anymore. So the Goblin's going to kill him. Uh, and and mm. he'll get replaced. That way, we can kind of have some alternate rosters for the Sinister Six, which would be fun. Uh, but it's all going to end with a is uh, the Sinister Six is going to, for all intents and purposes, uh, hold the city hostage uh, as part of a robbery. Spider Man's going to get drawn out, uh, and the final conflict uh, is going to be between Spider Man and the Goblin. And the way Spider Man's going to defeat the Goblin is he's just going to unmask himself and say, "Harry, I'm your best friend. Please don't do this." And it's going to awaken Harry's humanity, and Harry kind of overcoming the family madness is going to turn himself in. Mm. And that's that's what it's going to. It's almost going to be like an intervention. That's how the Goblin's going to be defeated is th- is through the power of friendship. Very interesting. 
And just to create a little bit of confusion, we'll just call it Spider-Man Trilogy. Okay, there you go. Not Spider-Man 6? No, that would be silly. <laughs> yeah. Um, Alright, there you go. So, very, very interesting. We, um, yeah, let's talk about what you're watching. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, uh, unfortunately, I have not had a chance to uh, watch much. Uh, I had uh, conventions uh, back-to-back that I was either vending at or attending, although one of them was uh, just actually yesterday. Excuse me. Yesterday was a Scarefest in Lexington, Kentucky. It's the ten-year anniversary of the convention. Uh, I did some vending there. I was I was very pleased. I got to meet uh, Mary Jo Peel uh, and Bill Corbett from Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand. Got some autographs from them, uh, which is pretty cool. So the short short version is I haven't had any time to sit down and watch things. Although I did walk away from this convention with a couple of horror DVDs, both horror releases and a couple of independent films, which I'll be talking about on a future episode. But I have been doing uh, a lot of reading, particularly short fiction. I'm now four stories in to the uh, omnibus collection of Harlan Ellison short fiction, uh, Dreams with Sharp Teeth. And uh, how are their stories in it so far? So far, really, so far, really enjoyable. Also, lots of preamble. The, the, this omnibus edition has like three introductions, and then each piece of short fiction has a one-page introduction. So there's lots of, and I guess for lack of a better term, bonus material in this collection that is very often just as interesting and entertaining as the stories. Yeah, Harlan Ellison, uh, Harlan Ellison isn't shy about naming names or getting into the gory details of the, the stories and how they came to be, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, what, what did you pick up? Uh, what movies did you pick up at the convention? Uh, let's see. Well, I picked up uh, from, uh, actually from Mary Jo Peel. She was nice enough to sign it. I bought the complete collection of Cinematic Titanic, which was uh, Joel Hodson's follow-up to Mystery Science Th- Theater 3000 that she was a part of, uh, which I believe has like 13 or 15 movies on it, which uh, oh, wow. varying degrees of quality, which is are going to be really fun uh, to go through. Uh, there was also a independently produced horror comedy called like, I think it was called like Bud and Dale's Dirty Jobs or, or something along those lines about, uh, I, I don't know the, the plot, but it's like two gardeners get involved in some sort of horror hijinks. Pretty cool. Um, I was looking at, um, I, I saw a movie that I'd been meaning to see for a few years now, but just never have, and I made time for it. I'm talking no. about American Reunion, the fourth American Pie film. And I, it was surprisingly good. You know, I think they it's less cartoony than American Wedding, the third film, and it is one of those... Um, it just has a lot of character moments and pays off a lot of things set up in the first film. People are in different situations hmm. from the uh, where they were in the original. It has a lot of cameos from different people from the cast, especially towards the end. Um, what's weird is one of the cast members on the poster uh, is only in the film for one minute. So it's odd that she's <laughs> featured on there. But wow. Was was that the woman who was in uh, How I Met Your Mother? It was Natasha Leone. Ah, uh. so 
she yeah but let's see what else um the American reunion it, it's about you know as you think from the title they're going to their high school reunion. The weird thing is, it's the thirteenth high school reunion. Yeah, that's an arbitrary number. It's very arbitrary, and they say like, well, "Oh, you know, we got decaphobic." They they try to explain it, which I think even makes it worse. And they're like, "Oh, well, uh, I couldn't get stuff together quick enough, so I know I'm a few years late." Um, they they don't harp on that as a joke in the movie. They just kind of move on. But um, gee, but you can tell. Uh, some stuff in the movie is already dated, even though it came out in 2012. You have a Ooh. Twilight joke. Um, you have a, a big... I mean, I guess this TV show is still on the air, but you have a one of the main characters, uh, Oz, who is played by Chris Klein, does a... Um, he becomes a sportscaster, and he's on Dancing with the Stars, and we get to see his embarrassing dance. Um, but I think... It also has, I think, less uh, nudity than any other film in the series. Do you think that hurts it or helps it? I think that hurts it. Um, I mean, not that I don't think the American Pie movies are really that outrageous, but you, um, I, I guess the nudity it has in this one is more practical. We get sort of a funny subplot of um, Jason Biggs, who plays Jim Livenstein. He, uh, he runs into a girl that's eight. 18 that he used to babysit for and she has a thing for him and she accidentally ends up in his car naked and zaniness ensues uh, you get a really nice scene with um jim's dad played by eugene levy running into stifler's mom uh played by jennifer coolidge and they both get high and they have some fun dialogue scenes because they've been working and they've been in a lot of films together but this is the first time they're both in the same scene. They are uh, in the series, yeah. And it's it's you, you get a he has some really perhaps his best moments of the series in this one. Actually, you get he he uh, mentions he's a widow now, and they decide to work on trimming his eyebrows. And you see sort of like a, a couch full of eyebrow hair, and he's <laughs> like, "Oh, it looks great," and it doesn't look any different than it did before. Watch out, my wife. Uh, she she died off screen. Yeah, you get, um, and, and also in, in a series regular sort of gag, you do get um, him having an awkward sex talk with his son, and he's like, oh, and he, he has a pretty dirty, sort of a dirty line, where he's like, oh, and if you're uh, suffering uh, erectile uh, dysfunction, you know, you can just, uh, he sticks his thumb up, stick stick that somewhere while you're, to bide some time, it's, it's always been a winner for me, Um so it's son i'm gonna give you some practical advice right oh and i, I see uh you got your old favorite these magazines are in uh, right by the bed and uh, oh i uh, the pages seem to stick together i don't know how that happened or, yeah so it's um it's pretty funny i and they use a lot of good um music callbacks to music in the first film as well um and reuse a lot of the locations so that's nice uh -huh. american reunion i'd recommend it was a pleasantly surprised Okay, now, now, I, as someone who's only ever seen the first film and saw it years after its release and didn't yes. like it, should I check this movie out? I don't think you'd get much out of it, really. Okay. Um, it helps if you've seen the other film, but you know, you sort of go on a, a journey with all these characters, and this is where it apparently ends. Uh, why they didn't just call it American Pie 4, I don't know. But American Reunion um, is a very generic title. 
Uh, should be noted, it's written and directed by the guys who wrote the Harold and Kumar movies, John mm-hmm. Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg. So, um, tune in next week. We're going to talk about Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. Uh, then the week after that, I think we're going to do an episode just kind of talking about the different Spider-Man TV shows, because there's a lot of those, and that'd be fun to do. And yeah, a, lot, um, a lot of grist for that mill. Absolutely. Including so, the one where he has a robot. Oh, yes, yes. Now follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Follow the show at SequelCast. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes, please, please, please. Um, if you have some extra money you'd like to throw it away, you can make a monthly recurring donation at patreon.com slash sequelcast2. And if you'd like to throw even more money my way, uh, Skirmisher Publishing has just released a revised edition of 100 Oddities for a Creepy Old House. It has uh, 10 pieces of, of new original artwork uh, by myself. It's been uh, edited and refined. It's the first Oddities book, so you know why not buy it again for the first time? Does it have more material or just more artwork? You uh, said more, the whole thing's revised. Uh, we we mainly was revised for clarity. It was sort of a clarity edit. Um, all the new material is uh, the new artwork. So I think I, I think that brings it up to at least fifteen or, or, or seventeen pieces uh, of original artwork, which I'm I'm very proud of. I was happy to go back and, and add to this. And I believe currently, I don't know if the sale is still on. It was available for a dollar thirty three. Uh, as part of a sale, that sale may have ended with the beginning of September. Uh, so, but if it is the beginning of September, then it's like two bucks. But then there's also like an oddities bundle for a few bucks. You get the entire product series, which is pretty cool. Hmm. DriveThroughRPG.com <laughs> is going to be the best place to go f- to go find it, but you can find it other places as well. I see. Very cool. And um, yeah, I've been working on some technology articles for Pro Focus. I need to actually get working on those. So. Um... You can check those out at ProFocusTechnology.com, I believe. So, um, all right, yeah, tune in next week for Spider-Man 3 for Sequel Cast 2. This is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Peters, we need a name for this new costume freak. What do you got? I, uh, I think you should call him um, the Human Spider. No, 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 no. We already got a Spider-Man. We're only going to cause confusion. Uh, how about uh, uh, a kill? I, why you're asking me? You're the editor. You know what? I like your moxie. I am the editor. You know what? You're now assistant editor. It won't be long till happiness steps up to greet me. Raindrops keep falling on my head. But that doesn't mean my eyes will soon... Sequelcast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find another great film and TV podcast at battleshippretension.com. The theme song to Sequelcast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.